0: life support listeners, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Ghaniani, an internationally renowned eating disorder expert who talks to us about the medical side of eating disorders. I'm also pleased to be joined by my wonderful, awesome co-host, Jensi. She's back. <laughs> um, so thanks all for listening this week. And just a quick reminder, please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Dr. G, could you please introduce yourself, who you are, what your pronouns are, where you're from, what do you do when
1: you're not working, and what do you do when you are working? I would love that. Thank you so much. So I'm an internist who specializes in eating disorders, and my journey started because I'm the oldest of three girls, and I got into medical school, and my younger sister arrived at college in the same city and had developed an eating disorder. I knew nothing about them except that I loved her unconditionally, and she has been generous enough to allow me to share that he is the inspiration for why this whole topic got into my heart. She was sick for many years and is fully recovered, and when I was in med school, I realized that I'm a classic internal medicine nerd. I like to have the whole human uh, as part of my care, and that I was really interested in the ways that we can use patients' stories to be more responsive to their needs. I was an English major in college. And so as I sat with my patients in med school and then in residency and listened to the stories they told me and the words they chose to use about themselves, I realized that we could form this bridge where they could share with me about themselves. I could share with them what I think I know about medicine And we could together come up with a plan that seemed to make sense to them. As my sister worked on her recovery, I realized that the process of establishing that relationship with patients is so vital and and is a gift oftentimes in systems that don't necessarily give us the time to foster that. So I moved to Denver after finishing a chief year and uh, doing a hospitalist year uh, in gosh, 2007, and I started working at the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado, where after a year, the chief physician of the hospital system, who unbeknownst to me was the world expert in the medical complications of eating disorders, wrote out an email to my colleagues and I saying, who would like to help me grow and run the nation's top medical stabilization hospital unit for critically ill adults with anorexia? And at the time I was pregnant with my second daughter and I had my sister's experience behind me and I raised my hand and said me and that changed my career forever. So over the course of eight years, I had the incredible fortune of really getting to know this wonderful population of patients and getting to know the intricacies of the medical complications they were experiencing as a result of their malnutrition and then how to nourish them, but also how to speak to their hearts and how to listen with my heart. I had the great fortune because it turns out there aren't that many doctors who specialize in eating disorders to really become someone who could lecture nationally and internationally on this topic and collaborate with wonderful therapists and dietitians around the country and around the world. So when I left that program in 2016 to found my own outpatient clinic here in Denver, Colorado, I had a sense that I knew a fair bit, but that I probably was gonna to need to learn more. And oh my goodness, did I have a lot to learn because I only knew about one sub-segment of this patient population. And I opened this clinic, which cares for individuals around the United States because we're licensed, I think my partners and I, in something like 48 states now. I opened this clinic in order to do a few things. One, to provide as good as possible direct patient care, to people of all ages, genders, body shapes, body types, shapes, and sizes from around the country, and to uplift the quality of medical care for people with eating disorders here and around the world, and to try to provide some thought leadership as I learned things to use this platform I was so fortunate to become a part of to disseminate that knowledge more broadly, because people are thirsty for this information. They want to know. Either they want to know because they have a family member or a dear friend who's, who's affected, or they want to know because they want to do better in their own practices. So that's what I've been doing since 2016. I have learned an enormous amount, uh, and I continue to do so on a daily and weekly basis. And I wrote a book in 2018 called Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders, which tried, again, to share my knowledge base And awareness at the time with many 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 more individuals families and providers than I'll ever be able to to take care of directly and I have just become really passionate about all of the elements of uh, often unmeasurable illness that occur in those with eating disorders but as part of that I'm really passionate about prevention how do we prevent eating disorders at all how if they seem to be nascent can we make them as brief as possible? How can we reduce the experience of fear and trauma among families, clinicians, and individuals? So I'm very enthusiastic and passionate about it, as you can tell. Uh, on, a, on a personal note, uh, this year I will have been married to my husband for 20 years and uh, together 27. My daughters are now 14 and 17 and are quintessential Colorado girls, which is so much fun. I love in my free time to read YA fantasy novels. Despite having been a Harvard English major, that is what thats me. I love to hike and ski, although I'm not very good at it, and take walks with dear friends. And I absolutely love travel, theater, and great food.
2: <laughs> that's a safe space. No judgment here, okay? <laughs>
1: Thank you.
0: But my my husband is super into like um, YA. Uh, sci-fi novels and um so i'm always um lovingly judging him um but
1: <laughs> but it, it's with it's, it's with great love and respect so oh, no, that is absolutely yeah. necessary the nerdiness really knows almost no bound
0: yeah. yeah no that that's fantastic we all self-identify as nerds here at see who so that's that's fantastic um but what, what I read in my spare time, I um, actually came to know you through your book, Sick Enough. So I was really struck by the language that you use throughout the book, and really in the intro emphasizing people being sick enough to get that recognition, mm-hmm. to get the support that they need. Can you talk a little bit more about what that phrase means to
1: you in the context of eating disorders? I'd love to. Let me talk about it in two different contexts, perhaps. One from the patient perspective and one from the systemic provider perspective. From the patient perspective, individuals with eating disorders, almost always, there are no perfect generalizations, as a part of the psychopathology, come to believe that they themselves are unworthy of stopping or altering the behaviors, of getting help, even of feeling better. And their thinking will often go something like this. I've seen people on the internet who are much thinner than I am or who have much worse stories or a worse trauma history. Who I, I've read stories about people who have super abnormal blood tests or who have very abnormal vital signs. I don't have any of those things, so I must not be sick enough. It's almost infinite. The capacity these beautiful individuals have to decide that everyone else is worthy, but they themselves are not. It can be a casual comment on the street. It can be a less casual comment in a doctor's office the old, you look great, or, hey, good job, you've lost weight. That can have a moment in this person's soul where they say, oh, I guess if I'm being praised for what's happening, or if I'm not being seen for how hard this is in my head, I must not be sick enough to receive care. And and quite frankly, I have heard the phrase, I'm not sick enough, since I started in the field, when I was taking care of the nation's most critically medically unstable adults with anorexia nervosa who are only a small subset of the total quantity of individuals with eating disorders, all of whose medical problems are worthy and important. But even those patients would say to me, Dr. G, I'm embarrassed to be in your program because I'm not sick enough to be here. So that mentality is everywhere. And anyone who either has an eating disorder or who has had a loved one with an eating disorder instantly recognizes sick enough as being a core construct. And it's not just theoretical, because it prevents people from seeking care. It prevents people from naming how much they're suffering. And it's not that it's pure psychopathology. The reality is they are surrounded by a society, which brings us to the second point, that is putting pressures on them and that is privileging certain bodies over others, not just, quote unquote, for vanity but for actual physical safety in the world. So when someone who's in a larger body goes into a doctor's office, the likelihood is whether they have a beautiful relationship with food in their body, whether they've been dieting their entire life, or whether they have binge eating disorder, just showing up in the doctor's office in a larger body puts them at risk for severe stigma that results in underdiagnosis, under-treatment, and harm. So that group of patients may have gotten myriad signals from the time they were children that no matter how hard it's been to be in their brain with mental illness, they're clearly not presenting as quote unquote sick enough to be taken seriously by the medical establishment that's supposed to be out there to help them. Or It might be somebody who has anorexia nervosa, so-called atypical anorexia nervosa, meaning, and I hate the terminology because it's so stigmatizing and medically useless. It means they've got the restriction, the fears, and the uh, body image distortions, but they don't happen to get underweight. They, by the way, form the vast majority of people with anorexia nervosa, way, way more than those who become visibly underweight. But I can't tell you how many of my patients tell me stories that they, you know, go to the doctor's office because their therapist has said, please, I'm so worried about you. These behaviors are not compatible with ongoing survival and thriving. Please go to your doctor and get assessed so that we can help you. And the doctor who has eight minutes to see this individual lamentably says, Oh, I mean, you're saying you're having uh, problems swallowing and your digestion is is all messed up. Well, it can't be that bad because you're not underweight. And instead of being admitted to the hospital, they're sent home. So this idea of not sick enough is perpetuated by the system that we're operating under, by the fact that every time they go on social media, which isn't the problem, but it is the megaphone for the problem, they end up seeing people who are doing behaviors as extreme or more extreme than their own, and being praised, being called healthy, being called self-controlled. So the system itself then is flawed for so many reasons. And it's not because, you know, of the evil of, of, of any particular system, but the ways in which they interact. I got zero hours of medical training on eating disorders. I went to wonderful institutions, zero hours. So when doctors don't have a knowledge base about something, and especially when primary care doctors are being asked to be responsible for a panoply of clinical and uh, both medical and mental health situations, it can be super intimidating when someone walks in the door and says, I have an eating disorder, and the person thinks, oh, no, oh, no, I know I'm not equipped to do this. And the easier thing is to say, well, the good news is your labs are okay." The good news is your EKG is fine. Because that takes the doctor off the hook in their, you know, tender, compassionate soul, because they think, well, at least the patient's not that bad. But what the patient hears is, I'm not sick enough. So what we can all do as a field and and as families, as patients themselves, is to say, anyone with an eating disorder at any stage is sick enough to receive good care. And we want to acknowledge that good care is not accessible to all. But some care is going to be better than no care. And let's continue to raise our voices in advocacy for there to be awareness of how to care for people with eating disorders. The best resource along those lines will be the in-state dietitians and therapists who have eating disorder expertise, and who are now pretty used to doing telemedicine. Because that can be connected into any community, no matter how rural. If there is broadband, if there is a a cell phone signal, there can be help. Plus, there are written and podcasted resources that can help empower individuals, families, and clinicians to attend to this better.
2: Very interesting to, to hear that perspective. Cause when I think of eating disorders and how it's medically managed versus behaviorally managed, I guess I would like you to talk a little bit about that because I didn't realize physicians is like an internal medicine provider maybe didn't have that um education that to have this conversation with me if I'm walking in and, and telling them I have this problem. And then you have the therapist that's saying, Go talk to your medical professional. And it's like can you help us understand what is that difference between medical and behavioral management when it comes to eating disorders? Yeah, that's such a great question. It's a, it's a flawed system. We have a
1: flawed system and it is the system we've got and those of us who are lucky to be leaders in the field continue to try to shift and change this system. Where we are now is that someone with an eating disorder is more likely to be able to access a great therapist, and dietitian who know about eating disorders. And what that might look like is the dietitian meets with them for an hour a week, maybe by video, and they talk about how have you been eating? Um, How is your relationship with food? Do you need help with meal planning? I want to make sure you know that, uh, you know, As an athlete, you haven't been fueling enough this week, or you haven't been resting enough this week. I saw that you had a couple of days during finals period where you weren't getting enough nutrition in based on what you were documenting. I want to remind you you deserve good nourishment no matter what your level of stress is, no matter whether you have a stress fracture and you can't run for six weeks. Everyone deserves consistent. Adequate nutrition throughout the day. So those are some of the works that the dietitian will will perform. And then the therapist helps with, what is the brain doing? How is the brain interpreting these signals? Not only between self and what we might call for some the eating disorder voice, but then also from a society that's giving all the wrong messages. Oftentimes as people begin an eating disorder, no matter what body size they begin in, they get a lot of praise. They have people telling them they look great. They finally got their stuff together. They're really showing up for their sport or for their, uh, you know, dance troupe or whatever it might be. They might be winning their office's weight loss challenge, which I just think is such a dangerous idea. So at the same time that the therapist is saying, the unkindness you're showing yourself the meanness, the restriction, the fear you have as you wake up and wonder what did I eat yesterday and what may I eat today, those are going to be in constant tension with the way that society interacts with you. And it may in fact be in direct tension with how society responds to you as you recover. There's a beautiful article by an actor named Matt McGorry, Uh, that can be Googled uh, that talks about his recovery from an eating disorder at his peak of Hollywood glow, where when he was at his worst in his eating disorder, he had the body that everyone believed was the pinnacle of health. And as soon as he acknowledged what he needed and started nourishing himself properly and not driving himself to really poor health, his body shifted and people started saying, oh, well, he's gotten unhealthy. That is unbelievably challenging. The eating disorder itself is so hard to get through, but when the rest of the world is giving you the opposite message of the eating disorder voice and your team as you're working through this, it's super hard. So that's the mental health and the and the nutritional side. The medical side, from my perspective, is all these other important things that unfortunately don't get tended to that often. This set of fundamental manifestations in a body of eating disorders is not infinite. And and it's really detailed, covered in, in my book for those who are interested. But let me give the story that I usually give to patients, families, and providers when I set the stage for what is going on with bodies when someone gets an eating disorder. And it's the story of the cave person brain. So we evolved as a species. To survive inadequate food. The vast majority of generations of our ancestors over millennia were experiencing inadequate food, not plentiful food. And so our brain is exquisitely tuned to recognize food inadequacy and to save us from it. It's the only reason we're all sitting here today is because we have this part of our brain that is tuned to prevent weight loss, to recover weight as soon as we've lost weight, and to make sure that our brains and bodies are optimized to be food-seeking missiles after we've had food inadequacy. Which is a start of saying that the way that our bodies and minds respond to inadequate food, regardless of our body shape or size, are biological. It's not about willpower although the diet industry wants to sell us that that lie over and over again. It's about biology. So we know that when a person has inadequate food, for as little as even a few days, much less a prolonged period of time, the body changes. And all of the physiologic changes will be unique to any given individual, but here's the overall Set of elements that can occur. As the body seeks to slow its metabolism and need less nutrition, it may do any or all of the following make our hands and feet cold by reducing blood flow to our hands and feet. Because if we have inadequate intake, we don't want to lose heat in the form of warm blood out of our hands and feet. The vast majority of what we use our calories for is to keep our bodies at 98.6 degrees. In addition, it makes people feel chilly, so they seek warm sweaters and excessively heavy clothing and warm cups of tea because the cave person brain says, I don't want to do all this work for you. You get warm. You put on layers. I can't be burning sparse calories to keep you hot. The heart slows, just like a bear's in hibernation, because it doesn't want to waste calories on an extra beat. And so when athletes come to the doctor's office and they seem to have developed some very healthy eating habits and the doctor notices that their pulse is low, the athlete of any age might say, "Oh, well, it's because I'm an athlete." And you know, they have 8 minutes, so the doctor might be like, "Okay." But the reality is is that a beautifully nourished and rested athlete, either at rest or walking, is going to have a steady but not excessively slow heart rate. And when they're walking around, it's not gonna change much because a nourished, rested, hydrated athlete, walking is nothing for that body. However, for a starving person, they'll have a slow heart rate at rest. And if they walk down your office hall and back, their heart rate might go up by 75%. It's not formally tachycardic, but it's really jumped. I've seen very extreme cases But the reality is, is that a 75% change in a heart rate, not static, they're not dehydrated, reflects a starving person's heart. That can be used to help somebody say, hey, that and your cold hands, regardless of your other vital signs and your normal labs, show us you are sick enough to make change. In addition, their guts are going to slow. So stomach emptying slows called gastroparesis. And that causes someone, when they do begin to eat again, to feel excessively full, bloated, nauseated. All of those are physical symptoms that tell us typically, hey, stop eating. This food isn't right. But unfortunately, that has to be gotten through or the person can't nutritionally rehabilitate properly. And we can use gastroparesis medications for that individual until they're better nourished. Their guts slow generally. They're going to get constipated and bloated, and distended. And nothing says, uh-oh, you're gaining weight, like a tummy that's sticking out. So again, that's a dissonance between what's actually happening, these are starvation changes, and what the body interprets, which is my stomach is getting rounder. And if the doctor can just kindly say, hey, this is all going to get better as you nourish, then that really helps. A couple of other classic things that happen to spare calories are that eventually our hormones revert to pre puberty levels, which is why in those who menstruate, periods stop. Sometimes, not always. And for those who make testosterone at baseline, that dips down and sex drive and sex performance may really, really change. I've spoken with a former pro athlete who says in speaking with other serious athletes, they know when they're finally out of season because they become more interested in their girlfriend than in a pizza, for instance. So all of these things change, and of course, low hormone levels can contribute to fragile bones. There are all sorts of things that can occur, really often short of any vital signs change or any lab change, which are often quite normal. Now, the good news is, is that when somebody who has been unnourished nourishes again, their metabolism surges back. You cannot break your metabolism. And that's a huge fear that people have. So if somebody has been dieting or engaging in eating disorder behaviors, almost all of which involve some form of caloric restriction, whether it's caloric restriction all day or caloric restriction with purging or binging and purging or starving all day and then binging, which sort of covers the essential panoply of eating disorders, Restriction is part of it. So cave person brain is operative in all of the eating disorders and our brains do change. They start to become really hyper-focused on food. They, they want to uh, binge on a food if they have access to it, which is not because they have a sugar addiction. It's because it's biological. That's how our cave person ancestors survived after being without food. But when they begin to eat consistently and adequately again, their metabolism comes back online. And indeed, those who do need to restore weight in their eating disorder, which is not everyone, may find that it takes a huge number of calories to allow their body weight to restore because their metabolism goes so fast. But metabolisms don't break. Our body is there to be infinitely responsive to what we're taking in And in a last sentence on this very long answer, what I'll say is a key point of food inadequacy that our cave person brain is watching for is food insecurity. Not having enough food due to poverty, due to being in a food desert and not being able to get enough food in the house. So increasingly, we understand data that show that children and adults who don't get enough food may develop formal eating disorders. Yes. Biologically, you now understand with the cave person brain where they may find themselves binging on food when there's enough food in the house and thinking, why am I doing this? I I, I don't even, I, I have to save this food for the rest of the week. I can't eat it all at once. They may even find themselves overvaluing the appearance of their body separate from the actual food accessibility. So this is something that has been under discussed in the eating disorder world and that we need to bring to people's attention because there's a lot of folks who will come into that primary care office, maybe whose weight is rising and the doctor who has eight minutes says, hey, we got to work on uh, cutting back on sweets. When in fact, this has to do with I have food insecurity from Monday to Wednesday. My metabolism falls. My brain is craving it. I get my food source on Thursday, I'm binging on it and my weight is rising because bodies try to preserve their weight. So we have to be more thoughtful about what's happening biologically when it comes to starvation medicine.
2: You give us so much to think about. Like I have so many more questions within that answer. Um, I think what I wanna go back to real quick um, is the, the comment you made about like society's view. And like that actor, like everybody was like, oh, you're so healthy, but you, he really wasn't. Can we talk about why we should shift what that image of like a eating disorder person looks like? You know, typically you're a white female, like, you know, emancipated or, you know, so it's like, what should it look like? Or how should we think about this? How should we shift our mind and the image that media tells us is healthy versus not? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. The stereotype of
1: someone with an eating disorder is young, white, cis, heterosexual, able bodied, underweight, and well resourced. It turns out that while that group very much exists and is very important to care for, it reflects a tiny percentage of the groups who actually have eating disorders on the whole. People with eating disorders are very rarely underweight. The vast majority of people with eating disorders are in so-called normal weight or higher weighted bodies. Which is kind of mind boggling for people. That's like a little bit of a set shift. But the reality is, is they are experienced by individuals of all genders, of all ages. I myself have treated patients so far from 10 to 73. They are much more prevalent in those who are in the LGBTQIA communities, specifically trans, binary, and even more so trans, non-binary individuals are going to be more prone to eating disorders. We're increasingly seeing it amongst our boys. Our boys are getting messages from their peers and from social media, especially around puberty, when they finally get access to social media, that there is a certain look that is not just attractive, it is powerful. And there's nothing that teens are better at than identifying who has power and finding ways to try to avoid things that disempower them and absorb things, even when they're unhealthy, that make them more powerful. So we know that a certain look of a certain boy is powerful. And therefore, I have seen tons of boys, and these are guys who are great athletes in Sports that are not looks-oriented, classically, ending up trying to cut down on things, trying to watch calories, over-exercising in response to binging, which was in response to trying to restrict calories, and they end up with much worse sports performance and with the risk of ending up with a formal eating disorder. And we actually know that boys have double the death risk of girls. P.S. Across the board, any eating disorder diagnosis carries a double death risk compared to age-matched peers. And if you have anorexia nervosa, the death risk may be 60 to 30 times higher compared to an age-matched peer who doesn't have it. So these are not stages. They are not phases. They are not acting out. They are not a bid for attention. They are serious mental illnesses that require serious responses. And as we expand our view to understand who could be having an eating disorder, your nephew, whom everyone's been praising as he gets lean, having been chubby throughout his childhood and early teen years, may actually be going down a rabbit hole that's not safe. The only way we can tell is to ask, you know, in a safe space, hey, tell me a little bit about what's going on with body and food right now. That's it. Be quiet and let them speak. The more defensive they are, the more serious the problem may be. Because if a kid says, oh, I mean, thanks for showing your concern. Honestly, I'm eating a ton. I'm working out a lot. I know that, you know, my, my body might look a little different right now, but I'm, I'm doing pretty great. Um, or, yeah, you know, my stomach's been hurting. I'm, I've been having some diarrhea. And suddenly we make a diagnosis of Crohn's disease that no one was paying attention to but the person who says what i'm fine i'm good I, I don't have any problems at all why are you even asking me about this i heard you talking about diets oh then we have a little red flag that something is happening but while the response can be relatively universal across all the different eating disorder diagnoses we have to change our view of who may be ill And stop our, and by our, I mean the medical industry, snap judgment that they can look at someone and tell who's healthy and who's unhealthy. Yes, perhaps at very extremes of weight, we can probably assume that that health is not optimal. But I can't tell you how many patients are in three-organ failure and have suicidal depression, whom I have in my clinic, who are stopped on the street by people they don't know who say, you look amazing. What is your secret? And again, that's just so confusing for the eating disorder.
0: I think that, you know, you can see our heads shaking back and forth like, gosh, what a challenging reality for our, you know, people who could be our friends, neighbors, patients to live with. And I think it's so important to talk about.
2: Great. Thanks for a great session today and um, remember to give a little life support out there and follow us and like us and we'll have a part two with Dr. G. So watch out for that and have a great rest of your day and come back in two weeks. Thanks.